Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. My name is Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico. Welcome. If you're visiting in from out of town or if you're visiting looking for a new church home, we're really glad that you're with us here this morning. And um, it is a long weekend for most of us, for many of us. So I hope that this helps you celebrate the weekend. We are taking a little bit of a kind of one-off sermon today. So we're not starting a new series yet. We're going to dive into Galatians starting next week. And we just finished up Psalms. And I thought that this would be a good kind of bridge to get us ready for Galatians. And it's an opportunity for us to um, just take some time and consider what our salvation is and how salvation happens. Because when you think about it, it's a very disorienting thing. I know it was for me. Like, all of a sudden, you start to believe in things that you never would have imagined yourself believing, and your life starts to fundamentally change in ways that you never imagined they would change. And so it's really disorienting. And it's nice that Scripture actually speaks to what happens when you are saved because it helps orient us to that new reality, something that is really difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And so whether you are already a Christian and have been a Christian for a long time and are um, walking by faith, following the Lord, this is going to be helpful for you to remind yourself of because it's something that we all too often will forget or just get distracted by other things with. Or maybe you're in a position where you're kind of in the midst of it and you're going through some type of spiritual transformation. You're starting to actually believe in those things that you thought you never would believe in or you're at least interested in them. This is going to give you um, a really clear picture of exactly what Scripture describes salvation as and how we should respond to it. So to do this, we are going to go into the book of Deuteronomy. We're just going to parachute into Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we're going to look at a passage from verse 6 to 11. And before we read that section of Deuteronomy, you do need to know this about Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is structured as a covenant, a legal document, basically, that in the ancient Near East, conquering kings would make with the kingdoms that they conquered. And so they would have these covenant documents, these treaty documents, and they would have very specific criteria that they would list in there. They would have like a preamble that said how great the king was they conquered. They would have another little list of like how you know, terrible the kings that they conquered are and how small they are. And then they would have obligations, blessings, and curses all within the covenant document. And so Deuteronomy is actually structured like a covenant document because this is Moses's kind of last sermon to the Israelites. He's getting ready to die, and the Israelites are about to enter the promised land. And Deuteronomy is literally second law, and it's a repeat. It's a second chance for Israel to hear the covenant that was first given to them at Mount Sinai. Right? Moses came down from Mount Sinai, gave them the law, they break the law, they go into the wilderness, it's redo time. So that's what Deuteronomy is about. And today, the passage that we're looking at 
specifically talks about the history of Israel's redemption, the history of Israel's redemption and what that means for them. It's a reminder. It's like, don't forget what's happened and don't forget who you are. So what, I'm, I'll go ahead and read this and then we'll get into our text this morning. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 11. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statues and the rules that I command you today. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, We thank you that you reveal yourself to us. That you show us who you are in the works of creation. And Lord, even more than that, that you have broken through our rebellion, through our sin, through our impertinence, and you have revealed yourself specifically and specially in your word. God, I ask that you would give us your spirit to help us understand this word, that you would help us receive it, to trust it, And Lord, that we would leave here reminded of how magnificent you are. So Lord, we thank you for this time. We ask your blessing upon it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Moses is talking to the Israelites about their salvation. It's been a little bit of time since the events that he's talking about but not that long that they would have totally forgotten it. And so he's just reorienting them, and he's helping them. Hey, as you prepare to enter the land, don't forget who you are, and don't forget what God has done for you. And so that is summarized as salvation. It's a word, it's kind of like an old-timey word, but it's a word that is really important to recover and to kind of dust off. Because it's a word that you have to understand. You have to have a category for salvation if you want to understand what the Bible is saying, what the message of the Bible is. And for us, we, I believe, I know for me personally, I spend so much of my time in my own world, in like a world that I create for myself, right? Like digitally, or even just kind of like looking at my work, thinking so much about what I need to do, what I am doing, that sometimes I lose perspective of the bigger whole. I lose perspective of the fact that this is God's world. 
and that he has made me and placed me in his world. And so the orientation of everything as belonging to God is an important thing to remember as you consider salvation because we are being saved from him when you think about it. This is his world, his creation, and yet things are, have gone terribly wrong. And so his love for his creation, as we see in this passage, it actually burns with wrath towards the things that threaten that creation. And so as we consider, hey, we need to be saved from the just wrath of God Already we're seeing what the impact of considering your salvation does, and it humbles you. It's humbling. And so the main goal of this sermon is just that we would be humbled. But we'll get there at the, at the end. I think we sometimes mistake humility for self-loathing, and so that's an important distinction that we'll have to talk about towards the end. But right up front, I just want to like say that the whole purpose of this text, the whole purpose of us talking about this this morning is that I think we are okay with our pride. We're kind of okay with it, especially as Christians, especially as people who have been in churches for a long time. It's kind of one of those sins that we're like, you know, I can actually look pretty good and be really proud I can be really well-respected by other people and be proud. But one thing that you can't be and be proud is a redeemed sinner. And so in order to get us there, in order to get us to the humility that salvation produces, we're first going to look at the magnificence of our salvation. And then we're going to talk about the history of of our salvation. And then finally, we're going to talk about the humility that that salvation produces. So first, we're going to talk about the magnificence of our salvation. Right at the beginning, you see God telling his people through Moses that they are a people holy to the Lord your God. And the word Lord is God's divine name. It's his self-disclosure of who he is. And so you have to know and think about and dwell on who God is if you want to understand how magnificent salvation is. You have to do a little bit of work to think about who God is. And I was thinking about this um, this week. I saw a picture from the James Webb telescope of the spiral galaxy. It's one of the galaxies that's out there. And um, it's like the clearest picture that we've ever had of the spiral galaxy. And it's just like these stars that are like spiraling. And it's just crazy. Because that's just like a tiny little like square millimeter in the sky where that galaxy exists. How many hundreds of millions of stars in that one little square millimeter of the sky. So going from that to thinking about the creator of that, the one who is powerful enough, who is mighty enough, who is beautiful enough 
who is intelligent enough to create a universe that big, that magnificent, that awe-inspiring. You're starting to just get a little whisper of who God is, of how far above our ability to comprehend him he is, of how good he is. We see that. God is immense. He's beautiful. He calls the Israelites to be a people holy to him, and that is set apart in purity for him. And the people have to be set apart in purity because he is pure. So he's immense. He's beautiful. He's pure. And then later on in this passage, we see that he's faithful. And he's not just faithful sometimes, but he keeps his covenant promises to his people to a thousand generations. Basically, well beyond our ability to even comprehend his faithfulness, God is faithful. So we start to see a little bit of the magnificence, and we could do, you know, we could sit here and talk about that all day. We're just getting a little bit of a hint of the magnificence of our salvation by thinking about who God is, who it is that we are saved from and to. But we also will see our salvation as magnificent because of who we are. And so just thinking about how big that spiral galaxy is, it like starts to shrink you down, (laughs) right? Like we're just on this tiny little floating circle that is microscopic compared to that one tiny little galaxy in all of the tons of galaxies that are out there. And we are just in one part of time in a long timeline of existence. Our lives are just a whisper. We're tiny. We're so small. I was talking this morning with a friend who's telling me about the sequoias in California and how huge they are, these redwood trees. They're huge, and you just feel so small. And I was thinking about that and thinking about the spiral galaxy, and I was like, this is crazy. We're just tiny, little, inconsequential, insignificant people. But that's not it. We're not just small. We're also small rebels, (laughs) We are small people who have defiled ourselves. We have taken God's good creation and we've abused it. We've taken advantage of it. We've corrupted it. We have willfully rejected God's good rule, the creator of all of this, and we have shunned him. We've turned our backs on him. We're in rebellion to him and we are universally unfaithful. And so this landscape of how small we are compared to God and compared to the creation he made, let alone God, and the fact that we are rebels, that we're stained, that we've corrupted, that we've offended the perfect and holy God, creator of all of this, to then hear the words, but God has saved you. He has chosen you. He has chosen you out of all the people of this land. And specifically in this context, he's talking to Israel. 
He's talking to the Israelites. I have chosen you out of the people of this world for what? To be my treasured possession. The God who is that big, who is that beautiful, who is that holy, has chosen for himself a people for his treasured possession. A people not the best, not the strongest, not the bravest, not the most numerous, the fewest of all the peoples. This is the mystery that angels long to look into. (laughs) Why would God do this? It's absurd. I don't have that answer for you. All I know is that he has done it because his word says he's done it. And so now we're going to talk about the history of this salvation because we're stuck in the Old Testament right now with Israel. So it's like, okay, that's pretty cool for Israel. What does that have to do with us here sitting in this room from multiple ethnicities, nationalities, backgrounds? How does this relate to us? And to understand that, we have to understand the history of salvation, that our salvation is a series of historical events that actually happened in history. They're falsifiable. It has worked itself out in the history of this world that God has chosen for himself a people. And so the first thing that we know about the history of salvation from this text is that it's grounded in a promise. Moses tells the people, he says that God has been faithful because he made a promise to our fathers. He has made us his treasured possession because he first promised that he would do that. Think about Abraham. There were no Israelites. This little, insignificant farmer, shepherd, Abraham. God says, Abram, get up and go. I'm going to show you a land. And he gives Abraham these amazing promises. And as the history of Abraham's descendants unfold, all of a sudden you see some of the unlikely fulfillment of this promise start to happen. It seems like pretty much everybody is barren, Or that the birth order's flipped and there's all of this family war that's happening in this family to make it seem like this is surely going to fall apart. And yet it continues on. And in this passage, Moses reminds us, you were in Egypt. Well, that's not the land that Abram was to go to. How'd they end up in Egypt? Well, it's because that family... Joseph and his brothers, the sons of Jacob, they were at war with each other. They sold one of their sons, or one of their brothers, into slavery, pretended that he had died, and he got shipped off to another kingdom to be a slave in Egypt. And yet God continued to be faithful. He worked through that. He continued to work his promise until all of a sudden in Egypt, there was millions of Israelites. Talk about the most unlikely soil for the promises of God to start blossoming. Egypt was a power of the earth 
that was completely set against God. They would hold up their gods as way more powerful than the God of Israel, and they would say, yeah, we have proof. We have them in slavery, so our gods are clearly more powerful. God delivered them with a mighty hand, the plagues. Moses going to battle with Pharaoh, and then finally the Red Sea parting, the Israelites passing through, and the sea closing in over Pharaoh and his armies, delivering the people of Israel. This is the history of their salvation. So it's grounded in a promise, redeemed out of Egypt by God's mighty hand. But it's also contingent on Israel's obedience for ultimate fulfillment. Look at the end of this passage. It probably caught your eye and jumped out because it's kind of language that like grates against kind of our hearts and our, our desires. It says that God repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Because if you don't do them, it's an act of hate. It's an act of rebellion. It's an act of aggression against the God who has redeemed you. And so you see this promise was contingent for Israel. It says, I will bless you. You will be in this land and you have to obey, right? This is the basic framework of this covenant. And we know, we know the history. The Israelites, basically, they get done hearing this from Moses and they immediately start disobeying. They don't go in the, into the land and fight the armies when they're supposed to. And then God says, ah, all right, well, I'm not going to do that. And they're like, I'm not going to give you the land anymore. And they're like, no, no, we'll go fight. And he's like, go ahead, but I'm not going with you. So they go and fight without God. And it's like they can't make the right decision ever, it seems like. It's failure after failure after failure. Every single Israelite being led in rebellion to God. So what happened? Well, the history of salvation is finally and fully accomplished by the only faithful Israelite. You see, God had chosen Israel not because they were so many, not because they were so morally pure, not because they were so good, not because they would be the only ones who would actually obey God, but he chose them because he loved them as a people. That's the only reason that we're given in Scripture, just that he loved them. And from them, he produced his only true faithful son. From the tribe of people that had no home, had no God, had no land, God took on human flesh entered into human history and perfectly obeyed every single one of the commandments and statutes and rules that he commanded to the people. Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived a life of fulfillment, of covenantal fulfillment. 
He pleased God. He showed himself to be faithful, a covenant keeper in the midst of a bunch of covenant breakers. And you can now start to compare Jesus and what he did to Adam and what he did. Adam was given basically the same job. He said, you are going to be my representative to this earth, and so I want you to do this work, and I want you to not eat of this tree. And Adam, in a world that was kind of like going downstream with obedience, everything was so easy to obey God. There was no thorns and thistles. There was no curse on the earth. Even Satan appears as a snake in miniature form to what he would become. And Adam disobeyed. And curse was brought into the land. And now all of a sudden, the life that Jesus is living, he's living upstream. He is paddling up against the grain of what the world is doing. He's living in community with a bunch of sinners who are trying to kill him basically his entire life, trying to seduce him, trying to get him to exercise authority according to the standards of the world. But he keeps the covenant. He's faithful to the end. But that's not what ultimately accomplishes our salvation. That fulfilled righteousness. That showed Jesus to be righteous, but it still isn't good news for sinners. It still is not good news for rebels because we're still under the curse. And that's why in the death of Christ, where he takes on the punishment, the covenantal curses that were due to rebels, that's where our salvation is accomplished. When he goes to the cross, when he dies on the cross, he is satisfying all of the righteousness of God's wrath against a rebellious people. And there's nothing left to be done. There's no more punishment that's awaiting. You have been saved by the blood of Christ. accomplished by the only faithful Israelite. And even more magnificently, all of this is amazing. All of this is wonderful. It's hard to even comprehend. It's going to get worse now because this salvation was also eternally planned. So there's a couple of words here to pay attention to in verse 6. It says, the Lord your God has chosen you. Well, when did God choose this people? Was it after he saw some of this stuff happening? When did God choose this people? And what's he doing? Why did he choose Israel? And how is that, again, relevant for us? Well, that we get a glimpse of. And we're going to turn up to Ephesians chapter 1 and see what Paul is doing. Paul is evoking some of the same language to show us this is fulfilled. This this redemption out of Egypt into the land was a type. It was a foreshadowing. It was something in history that God was using to reveal to his people what he is doing in salvation. 
Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, talking about Jesus. So Ephesians, the Ephesian church, famous for being very divided, Jew and Gentile. Who's the us, Jew and Gentile? Paul is saying he chose his people, and it's not just Israel anymore, but it's true Israel. He chose us in Jesus. When? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He did that in love, just like he set his choice on Israel in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Our salvation isn't just forgiveness of sins. It's not just having the righteousness and the reward of Christ put on us, but Ephesians tells us it's an adoption. And now we start to see how it is that God has made his people his treasured possession. When God makes you his treasured possession, he brings you into his family and he sits you at his table. Now, in order for this to have happened before the foundation of the world, we have to confess that salvation, it's a work of God. We don't contribute anything to it. There's nothing that we bring. It's not like God saw ahead of time the people who would be faithful. No, he chose a people for, his, for himself, for his treasured possession. And now we're starting to get into how this salvation, how when you are becoming aware of what salvation is and what God has done, how it produces humility. Because this is so much bigger than we think about. It's so much bigger than we um, can even fathom that it humbles us. It just produces humility. And Paul knew this a little bit later on in the same letter. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, your salvation and your faith and the grace that God has given you, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You see, Paul knew that one of the problems in the church at Ephesus was they had lost sight of this salvation and how it comes from God from eternity to a people in time and how it is a work of God. And so what he's encouraging them to do is to remember the glory, the magnificence of their salvation going into history, but then also going outside of history and showing how it's rooted in the eternal plan of God so that they would be humbled. Because it is through that humility that God is working in them to be a people that is holy to himself. And so I want to talk about... a. Three different areas that I think we are tempted to be proud, especially when we think of this topic, 
but then more broadly as well. So the first one that I know is a problem for many of us, especially knowing that you know, we place a strong emphasis on faith. And we can start to boast in our faith. We can start to be proud in our faith. Because faith is trust. It's an act of the will. Right? Faith involves choice. It involves turning yourself over. And so, in salvation, that happens. You trust right? It's an act of your will. You're responding. You are seeing God and you're trusting him. But not everybody trusts. And so what's the difference between you and someone who's not trusting? How is it that you are trusting, but someone else might not? Is it because you have made a better choice? Is it because you figured something out? Is it because you have better control over your ability to trust and what you trust and who you trust? Is it because of your ability to understand the Bible? Your ability, right? Boasting in your faith, seeing your faith as something that you primarily are doing, if salvation only was made possible on that cross, if that's not where Jesus accomplished fully the salvation of all his people, it's just where he made it possible, then your faith has just become a work. It's something that you do. It's a way that you respond to God. And it's something that you bring to your salvation, something that you boast in, something that creates pride. And that will set you against people who don't believe you'll kind of feel a little bit smug, superior. It's like, well, if you just understood these things, then I'm sure you would believe too, but you can't. So we boast in our faith. But specifically with this, we don't just boast in our faith, we also boast in our knowledge. And this happens a lot for people who are like nodding along with me. They're like, oh yeah, I like this. We're talking about election, predestination. This is good intellectually stimulating. You start boasting in your knowledge, like philosophical knowledge of this, and you abstract it from your experience of it, right? And so if you're kind of more of the type of person who likes this and likes learning about it and likes all the arguments for it, and you want to argue other people into your understanding of it, because you're right and they're wrong, you're boasting in your knowledge. And here's the problem with that, friend, is that it is completely antithetical to what this text is actually saying. What it actually means for God to be sovereign over you is that even your knowledge, as imperfect as it is, as incomplete as it is, every single bit of it is a gift from God. And so what sense, tell me, what sense does it make for you to boast in that? What sense does it make for you to be proud of something that was given to you just because God loves you? You have no reason to boast. So we boast in our faith. We also boast in our knowledge. 
And then finally, this is kind of a different one. This is a newer one, I think. It's something that our society is kind of embracing, and it's just in the air that we breathe, and I think it gets into the church because of that. But we boast in our sin. Now, that's strange. It's strange for me to even say that because it's weird. But we have embraced this idea of being imperfect, and we kind of glory in it. It's like the more that you demonstrate and you put on display how bad you are, it's almost like becomes virtuous. I don't understand this, but I see it all the time, right? If you self-deprecate more, you gain in regard. I've had conversations like this where I'm like, I feel like we're just in a competition to see who says the worst thing about themselves. And whoever wins is actually becomes better. It's weird, but I think it's happening. And what this can look like is it can kind of become like a defeatist attitude. It can kind of be like, yeah, like, you know, I, I know that God saved me, so yeah, I'm a, I'm a terrible sinner. And you stop there. And it starts to become a boasting. And instead of moving, and instead of receiving the fullness of the gift, Ephesians 2, that passage finishes by saying that we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, it's like the catechism said this morning, for good works. Whose good works? God prepared them beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we can't just boast in our sin. We have to boast in a Savior, which includes faith, it includes knowledge, it includes sin, but it resolves in Christ. He is our only boast. We have been blessed in Him. And it's in him that we must boast. That is our confidence. That is our grounding. He is our salvation, like we sing. And so the humility that this produces, that this should produce in us, it's a real humility because it rightly understands all of this as a gift. We receive everything that we have from God. He has given us this treasure of immense worth, immeasurable value. And so I want to leave you with three, three things to consider in kind of directing our response. Like, what do we do with this? Well, the first is to dismantle your pride. Allow this reality. Allow the reality that from the foundations of the earth, God has chosen you to be his treasured possession along with all of the people that he has chosen. That humbles you. And so look for the ways that you've become proud. Maybe it's you've become proud in seeing Jesus as the example, as the standard and now you're really frustrated because you're not more like him than you are. Well, that's a form of pride. You're frustrated that God hasn't given you more than what he's provided to you right now. 
And I'm not telling you to be content, right, with your sin or your level of sanctification. But if you're frustrated, if you feel entitled to something, then ultimately that's an issue of pride. It's kind of like saying, God, if you would just give me something more than what you've given me, I would be able to do more for you. I would be able to better show your grace off. I would be better able to live in obedience to you. But you haven't, so now I'm bitter or I'm frustrated. So dismantle all areas of pride. Know that your pride is the root of all other sins. And continue to hold it up to the light of being saved by grace through faith. The second, and this might even be harder for us, I don't know, it's harder for me, rejoice in this gift. Rejoice in it. Rejoice in it. This is good news. Too often we hear this and we start to feel guilty and we're like, oh no. Like We think about all of the ways that we've messed it up, but friends, we can't do that if we actually understand what we've been given. Right? Think about a child who receives like, the best Christmas present he could ever imagine. And when he opens that present, he doesn't like think, oh, dang it, I don't deserve this. No, he's overjoyed. And this is what happens. This is what must happen when we really understand what we have been given, <laughs> that God has made us his treasured possession. It takes our focus off of us because he has given himself to us. And so when we see more of God and less of ourselves, we are filled with joy. And so we should rejoice in the gift that we've been given. And then finally, and this is very much related, how do you respond to this? How do you, how do you express humility from the salvation that we've been given? Share the news. You talk about what you're excited about. I know this because I'm a parent, and so I've had kids, and probably not as much with the third, but with the first for sure, every time I saw somebody, I'd say, you want to see pictures? Look, they just started eating, and they're all messy, right? And here's what I'm not thinking about in that, because I'm just so excited. I'm so excited about my child. I'm so blessed by that child. I'm not worried about the fact that 98% of the people that you show those pictures to are bored to tears and don't want to see them and are probably a little bit irritated and grossed out, right? It's because I'm overwhelmed with excitement. Like, I'm just so excited about it. And so I think for us, we oftentimes, we will get a little nervous about sharing the good news, about speaking this because we're like, these people don't want to hear it. This is going to be weird. Yeah, it probably will be. They, they might not want to hear it. But I want us to be f- so filled with excitement, so filled with joy, so preoccupied with the wonder and the mystery of this salvation that we just proclaim it, that we share it. Because guess what? Part of our humility is we don't know. We don't know how they're going to receive it. We don't know the work of God. We don't know the eternal decrees of the Lord of who he has chosen. But we do know that he wants us to glorify him by pronouncing his salvation 
to a world that is dying. So share the news. Dismantle your pride, rejoice in the gift, and share the news. Galatians, as we close here today, Galatians is a letter where the Apostle Paul is really irritated. He's irritated with the church that he planted because they've forgotten this. And they've started to try and find their own way to salvation. And so I want this to prepare us to hear some hard things from a grumpy apostle who loves this people. Because if we have lost sight of this, if you start straying and start boasting in other things, then you're at risk. That's what Paul says. You're at risk of replacing Jesus, of disowning him, of exchanging the birthright of the only true and faithful son of Christ for something that you can do. And I know we don't want to do that. So I hope this will prepare us to kind of just allow the gospel, allow the reality that God saves sinners for himself and that it's him that does it, to prepare us for a season of remembering that and of fighting to hold to it, to continue to trust it, to persevere in it. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, Lord. Um, It is so easy for us to think that we are entitled to the gifts that you give. It is so easy for us to think that our potential or the things that we do for you, the things that we can do in this world, that they create some sort of merit where we can come to you and demand. And so, Lord, I ask that this morning here that we would continue to be humbled by your grace and that that humility would produce joy and gratitude and that that would go from this place into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces throughout the week, that we would be a people, a humble people, but a boastful people in the gift that we have received, in the work that you have done in saving a people for your treasured possession. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.